0: Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Katie Rundy, author of the novel The Shore.
1: I think when you when you're a lapsed Catholic in a time of crisis, I can really understand wanting to return to the rituals and and feeling so conflicted about the actual religion.
0: We'll be back with Katie Rundy after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews, hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash First Draft Writers. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters. Consider it a subscription service. It is. It's like a newspaper or any hard good you get delivered to your house on a monthly basis. I have been putting my heart and soul, sweat and tears. Yes, sometimes there's tears into the podcast for nine solid years. Delivering nearly 50 episodes a year of what I believe, and I hope you do too, is quality content you can't find anywhere else. There are nearly 400 authors in the archive, which is always growing. It represents at least 10 times that number in hours spent reading, researching, interviewing, editing, and producing this show, and it is all me There is no staff behind the scenes scheduling my guests, reading the books, or helping me research and do the hours of work necessary to get this show into the world, where you can download it and enjoy it for free. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreoncom ncom firstdraftwriters to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear, and please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe, and thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative, and on to the show. My guest today is Katie Rundy, author of the novel, The Shore. Her work has appeared in Lit Hub, LA Review of Books, and Storyscape Journal, among others. She grew up on the Jersey Shore, where her family ran boardwalk businesses, which is also the setting of her novel. The Shore tells the story of a family of four that is in the midst of life-altering changes, as the patriarch, named Brian, is grappling with a fatal brain tumor that affects his cognitive functions and personality. The mother, Margot, and her two daughters, Liz and Evie, are doing what they can to cope with the slow death of Brian over the course of one summer, with each one of them turning to different sources of solace to find relief from their pain. We began the interview with Katie Rundy, sharing how this novel reflects some of her personal story.
1: I don't mind sharing any of it. It's been a really long time. And, um, yeah, so the character, the dad character in this book has this really particular type of brain tumor called a glioblastoma. And my family did go through that same thing. He, my dad, when I was age nineteen to twenty one, had that same tumor. Um, and depending where that tumor is in your brain, it really affects you differently. So other folks might have issues with motor skills or speech or things like that. But if it's in your social and emotional part of your brain, it really just changes who you are. It makes you really impulsive. It really makes you more, um, you know, like kind of obeying your like first impulses a lot, you know, really hard to reason with. Um, And that is, I think you don't realize how much of a part of your personality, those kinds of decision-making and right. Like those kind of like backstops for what you want right now uh, are part of your personality, but they really are. So, um, so that we, so my family did experience that. Um, And then the other part though, that's pretty, that is kind of taken from my life is we, ran these boardwalk businesses when I was growing up as well. So we had, we actually had everything except the type of business that this family in the book has. So the, the family in the book has a, a rental business. And I think we had everything else. We had a snack bar and an umbrella rental. We had some of the wheel games and parking lot. So, um, I think I just decided to take the very last tourist business and, add that to my book. (laughs) Um, And then the third thing I'd say is, of course, the town of Seaside, this Jersey Shore town is definitely, this is where I grew up. It's where my family still lives. So that was also taken from my life. Is Seaside
0: a real town?
1: It is. So it's actually two towns. And I, I hope that's clear in the book. It's like a lot of Jersey Shore towns are really small and the personality of them can change really quickly, like from this one square mile to the next. So there's Seaside Park and Seaside Heights. And Seaside Heights is the town where the reality show Jersey shore was filmed. It's got the boardwalk with all the bars and the crazy stuff on it. And then Seaside park is right next door. I think there's like two liquor licenses in the whole town. Uh, There's no stuff on the boardwalk. It's just for walking and running, but they're, they share just this border and they're right next to each other. And the boardwalk flows from one town into the next. So, um, As different as they are, you can't help but be all up in each other's business when you're that geographically close. So, yeah, so they're both they're both real. So you put
0: all of this in in this book, in your characters of Brian and Margot and Liz and Evie, this family of four. And I guess I'm curious, before we start really digging into the book, you had mentioned that when you that you have your MFA from Warren Wilson and that when you first left school, you weren't writing So was this the story that you always wanted to write or did you come on this later after not writing for a while?
1: Yeah. The, the seeds of it were part of my Warren Wilson thesis, however, not, but the plot was not at all. There was no brain tumor in my MFA thesis. The worst thing that happened to anyone in that version of this was the mom takes off and leaves town. She goes to Florida and gets a boyfriend, which is still bad. That would be a hard thing for a family to go through. But, um, I set aside that version for years and then came back to it. And it may sound cliche, but I don't think I was ready to write about that part for years. I think it had to sit before I infused that part. And it was also not the whole family's story when it was my MFA thesis. It was one 17 year old character. So Yeah, I I think it really needed time to sit. I needed time away from it. And I needed to get a little bit older myself and a little farther, even farther away from being that teenage age myself and closer to the age of the mom, I think, to infuse the rest of the family story into the book.
0: How did you know that's what you needed to do?
1: I think as you just, you dive back into it, right? I actually took a, I took a catapult online class with Rufy Thorpe was the teacher. And it was the title of the class was the novel first chapter. So this is when I had two babies and I was looking for a way back into this project. And I brought along this first chapter. And I think, re-engaging with other people's first chapters and seeing their first chapters so objectively. Um, And there was a real spirit of experimentation in that class um, where you really would break the MFA rules and be very prescriptive. People would throw out, try this, try this, try this, which is a bit, it's a bit forbidden in an MFA workshop, right? To be prescriptive like that. But this class was so much fun. And it was like, So many of us had already done that and we're ready to experiment and take or leave what came at us. Um, And so talking to these other writers in that class, I think, gave me such a spirit of experimentation that like, of course, throw a Word document open and throw this character with a brain tumor into it and see what happens. And what happened was I became just obsessed with it after that class. So if that class was such a gift, um, actually another book, at least one other book came out of that class, uh, Followers by Megan Angelo. Um, She was also uh, in that same catapult class, was in a very similar stage with her project. And I love followers. It's fantastic. And I I feel so lucky to have seen that uh, in the early stages as well.
0: So it sounds like maybe some sort of community really helped get you onto the track that led you into this deeper work.
1: I think that's absolutely true. It's, it's, I think from that community, it was this sense of permission and momentum that I I personally could not have gotten there on my own. Um, I'm very jealous of writers who can, can get there totally on their own. I think it really depends on the person. Um, but it had been, gosh, it had been years and years, close to eight years since I'd finished my MFA by the time I took that class. And I was just really ready for to show up for other people uh, again, you know? So I think, I'm sure a lot of writers who are past their MFA might say the same thing, that they need that sense of community to fuel a project forward that you may or may not think has, you know, the energy to keep going with it.
0: So in the shore, you, as we mentioned before, there's a family of four. There's Brian, who I think the parents are in their 40s. Mm -hmm. So Brian is the one that has the brain tumor. Margot is his wife. And they met when they were very young. They both grew up in the area working at a restaurant is where they met and had some on and off again romance before they got together. And they were teachers. And eventually started moving into owning one house and then owning men, many. So they, they have these rental houses that people rent. And then they have two teenage daughters. Liz is the elder and she it works at an, a place that where you can rent umbrellas and chairs. And has her new kind of first, I don't know if you would call it love, but her first boyfriend who is older and is in a band in Brooklyn and just there for the summer. And then... Her younger sister, um, Evie, is bisexual, kind of uh, has a crush on this woman and really trying to um, find her place in her community of friends. I think she's really experiencing the most kind of more classic teenager angst and things going on in her life. And meanwhile, their mom, because their dad has, as you mentioned, what this um, brain tumor does is it changes your personality. It makes you more impulsive. It can make you really mean. It can make you, you know, unable to express what you need to express. And so you're living with a ghost of the person that you once loved. So the mom has sort of checked out in in being a mother to them. And where the mom finds community is in in this online forum where she can be honest and share what's going on with her. And her daughters really miss her. And so the younger daughter, Evie, spies on her on this online forum and actually takes um, on the persona of another woman who's going through this to get information from her mother and to engage her in conversation. So that's kind of what's going on. So I just wanted to... To ask you in a way how you thought about writing everything that's going on, where you have one character who's kind of absent, which doesn't mean he's not in there. He is in there. So you see him, you know, maybe making an insult or you see him saying inappropriate things or you see him not wanting to get in the car or not wearing pants. But his we don't get a sense of who this, this person is. So you're writing a book all around a ghost. And I'm wondering if you thought about that and how you approached it.
1: Oh yeah. It's yeah. It's the central question writing any character who's not themselves right in the present action. And I, I'm, I became a little bit obsessed with books that do this in all different kinds of ways. Um, I read a lot of books about characters with dementia um, I read a lot, lots of addiction memoirs and uh, particularly addiction memoirs from the point of view of the family members. Um, and it's always, it's always such a hard question. So I think in the shore, the way I approached it is less is more right. That you, to trust the reader to, to take the cues from what you can give them from things, from things like characters, memories, those are for sure part of it, uh, but, but The briefer, the better, Um, and to allow uh, the reader to extrapolate the rest of what this person was, right? From whether it's one day that a kid remembers from a cross-country meet or a particular decision that they made, right? Like there's this section where Evie is asking about a class and pushing back on him and he makes her take this economics class that she ends up loving. It's a small moment, but I think you can extrapolate a lot from it. Um, And then using other alternate forms, I think is a really interesting way to get to know a character who's not himself in the present action. So we get to know Brian and Margo's early relationship through these emails in this, these web 1.0 kinds of emails in the very early days of email. And every person I've talked to about early emails in the nineties wishes they had them. I haven't found one person yet who saved them, who, who saved those really early emails that they exchanged, whether they were like silly ones with your high school friends, if you went away to college or, uh, or, or something like this with a long distance person you were dating. Um, I haven't found one person who still has them because your, your space was so small for them and you had to delete, you had to delete things so much more often and you didn't, you didn't think about it. Um, so, so that kind of, that kind of alternate form um I think is another way you can get to know characters when you don't see them as themselves so things like flashbacks alternate forms but always less is more because I think I think it's much better to to get a little glimpse into who he was than uh, than to spend a, like a hundred pages in a like a, in a really long here's who he was
0: and so the family is really grappling in a way with with silence amongst each other. So, you know, you just talked about creating this character who's quiet on the page and less is more. And then you're also dealing with all these characters that have some resentments. I mean, both the daughters resent the mom. The mom won't really mother them in the way that they need. She doesn't really know what's going on in their lives. And I think part of the way you handled that is that you, you have alternating points of view. So you have the book in each of these three women's point of view so the reader can get to know more of what's going on, even if that's not interacting with each other. But can you talk more about that idea of the silence that existed and how to create that on the page with the tension that is embedded in that?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really common experience within a family to, to feel so isolated within your grief. And there's two levels of grief going on with these people, because when you lose someone and you have to like twice, right. It's this, like, I call it like a mind F I can't, I haven't come up with like a better, you know, without using a cuss word to a better way to describe it. Like having to care for this person who's not himself, knowing he's knowing what the end is going to be. There's not some miracle cure coming here, right. You see where it's going. Um, that that's so isolating because whether you're even among the sisters, even between the sisters uh, at age 16 and 17, they're experiencing it differently. Right. And of course their mom in her mid forties is experiencing it differently. They're in the same house. They're in the same family, but no two family members experience of, of grief and especially this kind of caregiving and grief is the same. So that by its nature is so, is so isolating. So I wanted to portray that and, I think you can show that in these day-to-day moments um, that can break your heart. You know, these and these these moments of trying to reach out and getting shut down are really heartbreaking. And you only you only do that so many times before you're like, well, I'm not doing that anymore. And before you go looking for it somewhere else, I think everybody in this family goes looking for what they need somewhere else. And everybody in this family makes little attempts at Connecting and and demanding that the other person in the family like get how they feel, but no one has the bandwidth. To every everyone is so consumed with their own version of it that uh, you you can't have the bandwidth. Um, you know, and I think the Margot, the mom, is it, it's a particularly acute with her. The sisters can connect, I think, in a way with each other that they can't with her um, because she's so over she's so overwhelmed. You know, and she has these little flashes of of understanding what she's not giving her girls and just not be, not having the space to process it. I think it's a book that like it's implied that they'll be dealing with this for years and years after there'll be many more conversations and the, the bandwidth may increase and decrease after the fact. Right. So um, I hope that it hints at moments that are ahead for them when you finish reading. Um, but, but yeah, I think anyone who's been through this probably has a version of it. Anyone who's been through loss in a family, which is everyone at some point, um, has that frustration of, Oh, you, you are not living the same exact experience as me, even though you're my family.
0: Yeah. And you did embed some flash forwards for especially Liz. Yeah. I
1: just like also less is more right. Like I just, I want you to know that they're going to be okay. Like I, you know, I don't think you need to know. I think, I think you can see just a little image of, um, just a, a, a very quick image, a, a very quick allusion to what she's going through now will be okay. That she'll carry this grief and it's not going to, it's not going to break her. It's going to form who she is for the rest of her life, but it's, it's not going to break her. So I hope it's just enough that, you know, that they're all, they are going to be okay.
0: So the one place where I think the mother does push their connection. So basically, what they do, and as they organize their summer, is they're they're taking turns of who's going to be home when. So there's certain nights right. that Liz can't go out with her boyfriend, or certain nights that Evie can't go out with her friends, or they have to check in with the mom is home because someone always has to be on duty. And there's one thing that they basically have left that they all do together, which is go to church, but no one. The kids don't want to go to church. I'm not even sure if Margo wants to go to church. So I wanted to ask you about, because Brian, I think used to like to go to church, but I didn't get the sense that church was very meaningful for them even before, at least for the girls. Um, So I just wanted to talk about this ritual of church and religion and how that bringing that into the story and, and what that meant for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the very particular rituals of church for lapsed Catholics, uh, which there's a lot going on there and a lot of conflicted feelings. Right. Yeah. The family, basically they, the story is that they, they stopped going to church because everyone realized at the same time, like we don't, we, we don't believe what this religion is <laughs> is saying. Right. Like um, they had been kind of going along with the, with the rituals and kind of being the like you know, sort of like half their type of Catholics, you know, like, okay, we go, but we don't, we don't believe everything until Evie calls them out and the rest of the family agrees, right? Like we don't actually believe what this religion is saying. And we are, we are going to listen to our daughter and where we are going to not go. But Brian has kind of a resurgence of his own, of his own faith, right? As the brain tumor takes over. And as he as he changes, right, he's not able to have that same judgment and that same memory of why they left the church. Right. So Margo gives in and says, if this is important to you, it's it's one time we can be together and it's quiet. And I'm going to just compartmentalize the actual religious aspects of it. And we are going to go because I this is a thing I can give into and I can give my husband. It's a peaceful hour. We're together this doesn't imply we're going to like be Catholic and believe in all the tenets of Catholicism again, but we are going to spend this hour together. and she drags the girls along. But I think there's also uh, there's 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 something where it's like this port in a storm feeling, you know like I think Margot might be there might be more than she's letting on to why she wants to return to church because I think when you when you're a lapsed Catholic in a time of crisis, you know, there's a, I, I can really understand wanting to return to the rituals and, and feeling so conflicted about the actual religion. Yeah, so they go and they participate and the girls go kicking and screaming, but they, they do go. So that is a moment where they, you know, there's a degree that the girls get it and they do give in and there's this unspoken, we all know why we're here, right? It's for the time, It's to, uh, it's to give mom something she wants, even if we don't totally understand it. Um, and there's a, and there's an implied understanding that this does, we are not signing on for a lifetime of Catholicism. We're signing on for an hour of these rituals that we need in this really hard time in response to, uh, this dad who is, who, who who has this impulse to return to these rituals as well.
0: Did you have that in your life?
1: Yes, I'm, I am a lapsed Catholic myself and have felt all these same conflicted feelings about really missing, really missing the rituals. You know, I, I would say I also grew up as sort of that type of Catholic that, um, it was, it was kind of understood. It was, well, for one thing, for one thing, there was a lot about Catholicism. I just did not know, like, and I went to a Catholic college as well and got there and I was like, what, <laughs> um, because you know we had like shown up but i had sort of the like fill in the blank ccd class you know like you could just get 100 on the test if you wrote jesus in the blanks you know (laughs) like jesus and love in the blanks and then i i i feel very naive talking about this now right you know like at 17 i should have i should have understood more about it but i really didn't um i and and uh and then as I was in my own young adulthood, it was, easy, it was easy for me to show up and take the from the rituals what I needed at the time, right? And I was mostly mostly did that on myself. My husband's also Catholic, also was raised Catholic, but, but basically he described it as like, I don't ever need to go again. I was like an altar boy and have enough hours logged. I don't need to go. <laughs> so I would go on my own really occasionally in my young adulthood. And I would kind of compartmentalize my own, my own political beliefs from what was going on, right. Like uh, from the religion itself. But then once it came time to decide for my kids, right. I was like, it it felt very different and it, it just didn't feel right to me anymore. Right. So I became a totally lapsed Catholic, (laughs) Um, but have certainly been through some hard things like since, since then. And I really do miss the rituals of it.
0: What about when you were going through this as a teenager with your own father? Like, how did your family sort of cope with this? Because it's there's a little bit of a relentlessness to it, even though, as you mentioned earlier, like it does end. But if it takes two years, it's a long time.
1: Yeah. So you absolutely hit the nail on the head calling it relentless. And I would say the hardest part of it is that you get this initial diagnosis and they give you kind of an amount of time that's usually less than a year. And then, but my dad lived three years. So you go every three months, but you still know where it's headed, right? But there are these like teeny tiny cases where people live longer than that, live five or longer. And so you go every three months and you get a scan and he did some experimental drugs in between. And I think that's just incredibly hard to every three months you get you. So you kind of live your month in these three month increments. Um, and yeah, that there's no way that that doesn't mess with you. So I I think everybody did kind of cope in their own way. So I, I was actually a little older than the characters in the book. I was in college. So I was, so I was also away for whenever school was in session, then I was home for breaks. To be honest, I think I coped in the ways that any, that a lot of college students would, you know, like uh, probably did a little bit of what Evie was doing and probably drank more than I should, and you know, uh, got some grades I shouldn't have gotten <laughs> uh, that, you know, where I missed a final once, you know, I think it was very distracting. I, I, I missed a final and you know, can you blame that on what's going on in your family? If you're worried or distracted, or can you say that that's something that happens to people between age 19 and 21 who don't, who are not always the most reliable people anyway, probably a little bit of both. Um, and, and then I, I think that my, my mom and my sister were home. My sister's actually five years younger. So she was in high school at the time and We um, I think one really important way that we got through the day to day and that they did was uh, we had a terrific caregiver who came and she was actually a family friend and she came every day. And then we had also family and friends who would fill in and do other days. Um, And they are very much the opposite of the experience of the family in this book. I uh, I really inverted that um, and isolated this fictional family much more than we were. Um, so my mom was able to work and I think work for her was, was fantastic, was fantastic. Like, I think that was the way that she had these eight hours a day. And she talks about this in this way that like, she, she would get in her car and have her coffee and wear her work clothes. And she said, she felt that felt really good every day. Um, and then my sister was like valedictorian of her high school class and was, um, she was like one of the first students to do like five varsity sports. She like, she did like all the sports and was a cheerleader. (laughs) So I'm not really sure how she did that. Sometimes I think she had to like, I know she was like cheering for herself sometimes. (laughs) Um, but, uh, so I think she, she threw herself totally into school. So if you're kind of looking at like the ways that the three of us coped, um, that's, that probably is the really short version, you know, but I think the other side of that is you just kind of do day to day and three months at a time. I was just talking to a friend the other day too. Like at the time, we didn't go to see therapists or anything like that. I think even twenty years ago was uh, was a really different time, you know, for that kind of for that kind of thing, right? Um, and how if it had happened if it happened today, we would make that part of our way of coping. But at the time, I think it was a different it was different time, and uh, and that wasn't that, that wasn't part of our, uh, way we coped with things.
0: When you were writing this, did you have discussions with them about the book, like lengthy discussions? Um, and how do they feel about the final version?
1: Yeah. Um, as I was, as I was writing the different drafts, yes. My sister is one of my early readers and she was very helpful in reading earlier drafts and, and, really putting on the hat of both uh, a reader and a writer and somebody who'd gone through this. And she was really helpful. Um, And then once the arcs came out um, and they read these, like there was a gap in between when I was editing with my editor. um, And then I gave it to them as an arc. And um, they did just a fantastic job. They're both voracious, omnivorous readers. And They basically were able to read it twice and read it as read it as a reader and then read it again as the really unique experience and the really hard experience for both of them, I'm sure, of seeing of seeing this thing you've been through on the page. Um and 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 yeah, I am very grateful because I've talked to lots and lots of writers who draw on their own experience who have had a much harder time and have have not been able to engage the way that I have with them since the, since the book came out, they've done, uh, it's of course, brought up some stuff. <laughs> um, but I think they've both done a really great job of, of engaging with it and talking through it and, and using it as a way to, you know, as a way to be proud of what we made it through. Right. Um, and a way to also like we had a party about a week or a week ago for for like the boardwalk people and family and some friends. It was just such a celebration of of my dad and of this place. People were really proud to see this place um on the page and to see it out in the world. You know, I think like I keep talking about how there are like you walk into a bookstore there are infinite books with beaches on the covers. <laughs> You could close your eyes and grab one, you know. Uh, but there are not infinite books set in this really particular beach town. So people were really happy to see it there. So I think as as the book's been out in the world, those feelings of being really proud to see this place on the page have also combined with their with the the feelings of seeing your own family's experience on the page. Right? It's it's all it's all one thing. Right? You can't expect you can't extract it. So they've, they threw the party and I, I thought that was just love. My sister like found all these boardwalk people, not all the boardwalk guys are like on social media. So she had to go and find them and invite them. And, and it was just such a great celebration of, of the place and of the portrayal of like, you know, what our experience was in this place.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's very much a character. The, the location is very much a character. You have, you know, it's very particular. It's very seasonal. It's, you know, I, you didn't write, that much about the winter but it's quiet in the winter and so bustling in the summer and you have people coming from all around the world to get visas to work in the summer it's like game on it is a tourist place and when you live in a tourist place your perception and experience of that place is so different because it's just your home and so it was a very powerful element of the book as you know writing about places character
1: oh yeah yeah there's there's nowhere, there's nowhere exactly like it. And it's funny that, you know, I've like, you know, I've traveled, I've lived in a lot of different places and, and some places you'll, you'll get a little like spark of like, this reminds me of seaside. Like, I, you know, driving all the way up the coast of California once when we lived out there and we ended up in Santa Cruz and I got just little flashes. I was like, okay, this is kind of the closest I've come to a town that felt like seaside in that in that whole trip of all these different feeling California coastal towns, you know, but yeah, there, there is, there is nowhere just like it. And the rhythms of a tourist town are, uh, they're so, they're so particular because it's so, it's so intense for these like 10, it's really just 10 weeks. Um, in the probably seventies and eighties, it, it was busier like during the week too. Right. Like, moms who were stay-at-home moms would like bring kids and it was kind of a busier time so now it also is like much more intense on the weekends uh, than during the week too and so it's even more concentrated so I think that also speaks to like the the grief that the family's going through right like anyone who's experienced grief or in the midst of loss you feel kind of weird and exposed when you do something like go to the grocery store Right, or you go to work. Right, um, there's this little like ah, like I shouldn't be here. Like I feel fragile and not myself. And it's like you have this secret thing that's occupying your whole brain. And then when you do that in a tourist town where everybody's there to party, right? Not just like a regular office or like I'm going out on some errands. You you amplify that times a hundred. Like that feeling, you know, that everybody feels at some point when you're in the midst of loss if you put it, you put it somewhere where everybody's there to party and have their one week at the beach, it multiplies it by a hundred, you know?
0: So one of the things that, um, Margo found solace in was this online forum. Can you talk a little bit about this online forum. It was, I mean, it was basically a support group and you were talking earlier about how, you know, 20 years ago there wasn't therapy and she wasn't going to therapists, but this was a type of therapy for her. And so you got to write, it was one of the ways in craft that you got to really expose how she was really feeling.
1: Yeah. This GBM Wives Forum, it's really interesting because these web forums are a very like web 1.0 kind of thing, right? Like they, they were one of the first things that existed at the dawn of the internet, right? Uh, but they still do, right? Like, and it's still a place that also, as I've talked to more and more people, they've people that I wouldn't have even have guessed would engage um in forums this way, have told me that they've found community and found answers to things that are very specific experiences, right? Or very hard things are going through uh, in these online forums. So I think they're, they're a place that you go when you really have exhausted looking for answers and community in any other way, right? Like when you've even exhausted Googling things, right? And you need, you need to ask somebody exactly what happens to them in a very particular experience. You might seek one of these forums out, and they're really interesting because there's an assumption—they're anonymous, right? But there's this assumption of trust that the people, particularly in something like this, like who would show up to one of these if they weren't actually going through what you were going through, right? Um, so so Margot totally trusts that the other women here are who they say they are, right? They are wives of men going through uh, a glioblastoma. Right. Um, so, so when Evie infiltrates it, right. Of course, that's like a violation of trust. You know, of course there's, that's a very like sneaky thing to do. Um, but she's demanding, she's like looking for what she's not getting to, right. Like they're both kind of there for the same reason. Um, So, and I think they both get what they need there. Like, I think they both really do find what they're looking for in this forum.
0: The other thing that really got her through that you refer back to again and again is a book. Is a book, I think maybe all members or three members of the family had had read. Margot certainly loved it. It was called The Girl with the Long Shadow. And there was kind of a time travel element to it. So, yeah. What did it mean to you to have literature be the thing she relied on? And what was so special about this book that the family embraced? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think one thing about it is that a fantasy book, right? So she she seeks this other realm of existence, right? (laughs) That that is like totally, like totally separate from what she's going through. And it's a book she reads over and over again, too. So it's like, it's a book that was hers and was a source of comfort before she was going through all this. And that's still there for her, you know, that she can return to again and again. Um, and yeah, it had to be a fantasy book for her, you know what I mean? And I feel like that's also like, it's like a little bit of a like secret vice for her. Cause it's like, you wouldn't necessarily expect Margot to be into fantasy, but she is. And it's this place she can retreat to. I think anyone who's a reader can appreciate that. Like I talked, you know, how many people have you talked to who said that their, their reading tastes changed so much in the really early days of the pandemic, when you're going through something really hard, right? Like, and reading is a, is normally part of your routine and is part of a source of like relaxation or comfort or escape for you. I think it's really 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 interesting that how that can change, right. As part of your routine, my mom, like I said, is a huge reader. And she said for, for the years after my dad passed away, she actually couldn't focus. She read just all she could read were like decorating magazines. Like she just like flipped through them. And like just, just could like flip through really quick. She didn't have that focus. So I think Margot kind of reflects that, that like this is the, what she has the bandwidth for right now. Right. It's then it's also where she's looking for comfort.
0: Was it fun to make up the book?
1: <laughs> it, it's really fun, especially when you're writing a book, right? It's really fun to just like dip in and out of a book within a book. You can do all the fun parts and you can just be like, and then I got on a like beautiful glittering superhighway And you can just like jump to this image and throw it out there and you're not responsible for like anything else, right? You could dip in and out the way that the the characters would, but you don't have to have the whole thing fleshed out, right? But maybe one day I will.
0: <laughs> one of the things that Margot came to was that she couldn't really ever get over this unless she moved. That's what she was toying with as right. sort of what to her daughters felt like a nuclear option because they knew that only from reading the forum. It's not something she ever said to them, but when you're a teenage girl and you are, you know, deeply steeped in your friends and your community, that's like getting your whole entire world ripped out from underneath you. So that was a lot of the tension of the book.
1: Yeah. I think that everybody who's going through grief loss, right? Like a few other things I've talked about, right? Like has this impulse to sidestep it, right? Like, I don't think anyone who's been through something like this would say that they hadn't had some like, oh, couldn't I just like fast forward? Like, you know, like I know this next like six months or year or five years or 10 years, right? It's gonna be so hard, right? It's gonna be the hardest thing I've ever done, right? So to not have this little like, oh, I wish I could just fast forward, right? Through this hard stuff. So for Margo, this is a very concrete 10 out of 10 way to show that, right? This like, literally moving, right? Like everybody wants to like, you know, get around their, get around their grief and would prefer to not like just plow through this really, really hard stuff. So she's making it literal, um, in, in a way that, yeah, I think presents something that like, you know, in most families would be much messier and much more of a metaphor and much more, uh, and much more, one step forward, two steps back. And, and here it's, it's literal. She's like, I am going to move away from this place to try to sidestep it. Real, She of course realizes that that's not, it's not possible, right. It's not possible for anybody. Um, and, but she needed it though. It's another thing that got her through like those zillowing, zillowing that place and Googling, you know, like ideal towns to move to was another one of her escapes that somehow recharged her and got her through. So as, as hard as that sounds to, to potentially imagine putting your kids through that, I don't, I don't ever see her as having gone through with it. Right. Like I, I don't ever see her as having when push came to shove, really putting her kids through that. She sell she sabotages herself when it really comes down to it. Right. Like a woman who like built her career in real estate, you know, like low balls and offer like that's self sabotage. Right. So I I don't I think it was always a comfort and an escape and a way to recharge as she's going through this really hard stuff that was that was never going to be real.
0: I'm curious about for you, since you had mentioned you have been working on this in some form since grad school and that it is a story true to your life where you're at now with your writing.
1: Yeah. To be honest, I was, I I was working so much like throughout the year leading up to publication on other stuff, right? Like on essays and which take a lot more than which like any essay writer will be like, yeah, no kidding. They, of course they do. (laughs) Um, so I was really nervous when I returned to the fiction writing space that, you know, that it would feel uncomfortable Where that you'd feel that sort of like cliche imposter syndrome. Um, but I've been able to just like implement all my usual tricks, right. The turning off the internet and the, uh, and the making word count goals. Like I love thousand words of summer so much and that cannot shut up about it. <laughs> Jamie Attenberg's, uh, Twitter challenge. Um, and I've found that like, I am able to return to that space, which I was I don't think you really know till you get back there. Um, but I'm super early stages messing around with things like, you know, nothing, you know, nothing on its way to a full draft just yet. But I am really enjoying the fiction writing space, which was a huge relief to me. You know, speaking of these characters, right, on what they need in their lives and what makes them feel whole and what recharges them, um, I think if you're a fiction writer and you find it, you find yourself in a period where that is hard to return to. You feel like something is missing. So I was for my own sanity was very hopeful that I'd be able to, and I have been pleasantly surprised that I've been able to get back there. So I I always say like the routine is up to me and the product is really not, I might sound a little bit woo woo, but um, the, but I've been very relieved that the routine part of it has been easy to return to.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Yeah, I'm going to read a passage from Goodbye Vitamin by Rachel Kong, uh, which is also a book about a young, a young woman. She's older than the girls in this book. She's, she's kind of having a second coming of age um, when she returns home to her house, which I believe is in Orange County, California. And, and cares for her dad who is going through dementia. Um, and yeah, I'm just going to read a little beginning from that book because it's told in these really little, these little fragments and it has this, it's imbued with this humor that just, just, oh, just, I loved so much when I first read this book and was so happy to see this combination of coming of age and caring for someone who is not himself on the page. So I'm just going to read a little bit of that, um, December 26th. Tonight, a man found dad's pants in a tree lit with Christmas lights. The stranger called and said, I have some pants belonging to a Howard Young. Well, shit, I said. I put the phone down to verify that dad was home and had pants on. He was and did. Yesterday on mom's orders, I'd written his name and our number in permanent marker onto the tags of all his clothes. Apparently, what he's done in protest is pitch the numbered clothing into trees up and down Euclid, his slacks and shirts hang from branches. The downtown trees have their holiday lights in them. And this man who called had, while driving, noticed the clothes illuminated. December 27th. In the morning, where I go to fetch them, city workers are removing the lights from the trees and the decorative bows from the lampposts. One man unties a bow and tosses it to his partner on the ground. All the great bright gold bows are piled in the bed of an enormous pickup truck parked in the plaza. In that same plaza, a frustrated man is saying to his dog, why are you being this way? A baby in a stroller is wearing sunglasses. And I'll stop there. But I just, I love the fragmented uh, form of this book. I love the first person. um, And I love these little details that she notices concurrently with dealing with her, with her dad, like a baby in sunglasses.
0: (laughs) Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Uh, yeah, this is from the end of the short, um, and it's a scene where uh, the 17-year-old character Liz is running again after she had she had always been a runner and had not been running since her dad got sick, and so she runs, she runs again. She laced up her running shoes, put on her headphones, hewed up her favorite album by The Machine is Red. She let the screen door slam behind her, and for the first time in months, she started to run. She felt her phone finally buzz with a text from Gabe and stopped to read it. Then she kept going. She ran up her street and across Central Avenue to the quiet miles of Boardwalk and Seaside Park. She dodged the people leaving the beach late, then opened up her head in an empty stretch, settling into the comforting rhythm of breath and rubber on wood as the wind shifted, a salt-cool bomb she breathed in. Her body felt unfamiliar at first, heavier and stiffer, but also uncomfortable in her old running clothes, filling out the shorts more so they rode up. She was tired even one mile in, though she felt other muscles carrying her that hadn't before her back and shoulders her arms driving forward and back when her legs fatigued the beauty of the familiar route let her forget a lot she could have closed her eyes and still seen the green gazebos the mounds of dune grass the victorian where the renters were out on the porch with their gin and tonics but her eyes were open seeing it all with a grateful ease this route was a remedy a solution an infusion of faith and uh, that passage there's a there's a bit more to it after that but that was one of the very few places where um, uh, my editor really wanted to just really, really cut it down to one paragraph. And I, I I did disagree with her and wanted to keep it on the longer side because it's such an important moment. And I think anyone who's returned to a practice like that after a lot of time away, I think would understand um, how important it is and how much uh, you both feel uncomfortable and immediately more like yourself the minute you do it.
0: Where do you write?
1: I write in, we have a three bedroom house in Iowa City, and I write in, it's like a combo guest room office that I do swap off. My husband also does a lot of work from home. So we definitely have days where we're swapping off the Zoom room. <laughs> Um, uh, and I also like to write in that bed. It's you, some people might think it's dangerous to have a bed next to your writing desk, but I kind of love it.
0: <laughs> what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Unsurprisingly, from the passage I just read, it's always running, uh, and usually with a podcast or audio book. Um, I've heard some writers, it's divisive writers who are runners. Uh, some really like silence and don't want to listen to anything, uh, but I definitely want the audio input. Uh, when I'm, when I'm running, even it still gets me away.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I have a great writing group in Iowa city. That's three other people. And they are amazing at understanding a draft or chapter for what it is and where it is. Um, and being generative when it's early and a little tougher when it's a later draft. Um, Then my sister, then my three closest MFA friends. And then finally I would show it to agent and editor.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: This might be a very like daughter of a therapist kind of thing to say, but first feel your feelings. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with feeling not very good when you get rejection or, you know, or that rejection of like, you know, someone else got something, you know, that you think you want. Um, But 100% of the time after you go ahead and feel your feelings. I think reaching out to tell someone else what their work has meant to you always puts me in a better space and makes me remember why I love to read and why I was ever audacious enough to think that I wanted to write something too. 100 percent of the time. It never has failed me in making me feel feel better. And what is your favorite word? is a word from The Shore that I love um, that kind of plays an important part. And the word is ember. I think it's one of those really beautiful words that sounds exactly like what the thing is.
0: Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, Mitzi, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I was so excited to talk to you. And it
0: was just such a great, such a great conversation. Thank you so much. If you like today's show with Katie Rundy, author of the novel The Shore, Check out my interview with CJ Hauser. We talked about her novel, The From Aways, which takes place in small town Maine. We talked about writing about the place where you come from, creating complimentary characters, and getting feedback from people who know you really well. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 370 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Elizabeth Strout, Stacey Durasmo, and George Saunders. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.